0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm so happy today to have Kathy Ashton, who served as the European Union's first high representative for foreign affairs and security policy from 2009 to 2014 and the first female EU commissioner for trade. She is a life peer and former leader of the House of Lords, and served as a UK government minister in the Education and Justice Ministries. She's also a distinguished scholar at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., and she's a consultant to the Geneva-based Center for Humanitarian Dialogue. I'm really pleased to have her on today to talk about her recently published book, And Then What? Inside Stories of 21st Century Diplomacy, which offers unique insight into international diplomacy and shares her experiences during some of the most turbulent periods in modern history. So Kathy, thanks so much for joining me today. It's a great pleasure, Dan. Lovely to see you. So I loved your book. I read the whole thing. Uh, And again, the book is called and then what by Catherine Ashton and you can get it on Amazon and it's a, it's a really great book. But one of the things I, I wanted to talk about is you, First, why don't you just tell us a little bit yourself. How did you end up becoming the super long title of High Representative for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy, which is basically the EU's Foreign Affairs Minister?
1: How did you end up there? They used to call it, Dan, the Foreign Policy Chief for short, which was quite a nice, neat way of describing it. So, you know, in the European Union, each country provides a commissioner and Europe decided about 20 years ago that they wanted to take the economic strength of being the biggest economic bloc in the world and use that to also further their interests in foreign and security policy. So they created, linked to the commissioner role and a role of a high representative who represented the member states, and they combined these two jobs into one added in the fact that Europe rotates its presidency and then looked around for somebody to come and do that role. Long story short, I'd been the commissioner for trade, so I'd done quite a lot of international work. And the nature of the way these things work, you know, they needed a woman, Britain needed to play a role, there I was, and uh, they asked me to do it. So it was an unexpected Opportunity uh, and certainly one of the greatest challenges of my life.
0: You have several interesting experiences that you talk about in the book that I wanted to go into some detail about. You played an unusually significant role trying to broker a different kind of a relationship between Serbia and Kosovo. Frankly, it's really a case study out of Getting to Yes by Fisher and Yuri on negotiations. If it's not a case study at, at the Kenne- Harvard Kennedy School, it ought to be because it's really quite interesting, and the and the details you get into are really quite interesting. And just just that chapter alone is worth the purchase of the book. The book is again called And Then What. So, Kathy, tell us a little bit about how did you end up having this unusual role, trying to do diplomacy between Serbia and Kosovo, and why were they interested in having you use your good offices to help them?
1: So, and and by the way, Dan, getting to yes was, I've got a first edition. I bought it. Ah. It just came out because it was such an important way of describing in simple terms a lot of the time what the whole process of negotiation is really about. I equally recommend anyone who hasn't read it to read it. So there were two or three layers. Let's start strategically. Strategically, It was important for the Western Balkans, this group of countries in the backyard of Europe, to be a focal point of European foreign policy. What happened in that region had direct implications for the rest of Europe. It was always a view that they should eventually become part of the European Union. And the lingering effects of war were pretty obvious physically in buildings that still showed you where the bullets were sprayed into them. And, of course, politically, where relationships internally and externally were very difficult. The other bit of the strategic approach was that this was an issue. This was a region where it really did fall to the European Union to play the lead role with the U.S. supporting. And so much of the time, you know, Dan, as you know in the world, Europe and America work really closely together, but quite often, if not usually, the US are playing the lead role and and Europe supporting them. And here was an opportunity with this new job, this new role, this new idea, to show that Europe could resolve issues in its own backyard with American support. I absolutely make that point in the book, but taking that lead role. So that was the sort of strategic bit. And then the practical part of this was that the relationship between Serbia and Kosovo was very challenging. Kosovo, a new country by self-determination. Serbia saying, no, territorial integrity applies. It's still part of Serbia. And a future for both of them, that if it was going to lie in the European Union, means or meant they had to resolve this issue in the end, but meantime, they had to resolve the issue as a manifestation of the problem. And that meant we had to look at what was happening to a small group of people, 60,000, 70,000 people in the north of Kosovo who were mainly Serb population and who did not view the capital of Kosovo, Pristina, as the place they naturally looked. And so the question we put to the presidents of both, prime ministers of both, was Is there a way we can make life better for the people of the North? By the two coming together, working together, not to try and resolve the bigger questions at this point, but in a kind of gradual way to try and deal with the practical issues on the ground. And the practical issues were about who are the police force? How does the justice system work? What is the relationship of people in terms of where do they look? For their governance and government, as opposed to where they might look for the history and culture and language. And we invited them to come and sit in my office two prime ministers, two translators, myself, and an amazing Italian diplomat. Six of us sat for many sessions, about 150 hours of sessions, some of them 14 hours in length, to simply work through some basic propositions. And last point, To give people a sense of what those were, we would ask some questions, which was, how do you get a representative, not an ambassador, but a representative in both capitals to whom you can go to talk about problems you've got with the other? So, Kosovo put a representative in Belgrade, Belgrade put a representative in, in Pristina in Kosovo, and... That allowed them to have a point of reference directly for different and difficult problems. And it was practical things like that. The reason they did it was because they both saw their future in the European Union. They both felt that pull of soft power to come to the EU, to feel that this was going to help them get in. And we gave them some very positive steps that we could take if they could show that they were on that journey.
0: Yeah, I think it's really important, especially for listeners in the United States that don't understand that joining the European Union is a very, very, very attractive proposition. And so Serbia probably would not have engaged in these negotiations, and perhaps Kosovo wouldn't have engaged in negotiations if they didn't think that down the road they were both going to be able to enter the European Union at some point. Is that fair?
1: It is fair. And also, if you're going to do something difficult with your population, and for the people in Kosovo, you know, Serbia was the, was the enemy that they had suffered terribly at the hands of Serbia. And for Serbia, the, the Kosovars who had decided to leave Serbia to create their country had had abandoned them and they didn't feel that was appropriate. So this was not an easy situation. The two prime ministers had never met when they came to my office. Rather, they'd conducted, if anything, between the two um the the sense of of being disunited of being disconnected of being enemies in the airwaves and, and beyond and so it was a huge deal and if you're going to do something that is so challenging for many people to understand you've also got to show them that it's worth doing it and the worth doing it was this will help us get into europe so the other
0: thing that I found interesting was some of the offhand comments by the prime, then prime minister of Serbia, who said, I travel the world and all people want to talk about is Kosovo. I'm sick of talking about it. So it was interesting that there were, in addition to some, let me call it the pull factor, perhaps Serbia and Kosovo had sort of visions of what they wanted for their countries in the future that weren't just tied to sort of their country brand about, say, the Serbia-Kosovo war. Is that, is that a way to describe it?
1: Well, that's right. I think they were surprised, too, that the level of interest of what we were doing. I can remember someone from State Department sending me a press cutting from a newspaper, I think in Sierra Leone, about the meeting of the two sides. And it was amazing to see how much countries, you know, governments, leaders were looking at what was happening here. And I think that surprised them. It certainly surprised me that, that there'd been so much interest. It was partly because it was incredibly brave for both of them to be prepared to come and do that, and for many politicians, the easiest thing is to do nothing, you know you just status quo being brave means you could lose support as as much as it means that you can gain it
0: and there were several moments in the book where you talk about the fact that political leaders were realizing they were they were risking their political careers the Kosovo leader, the Serbian leader, other leaders at different times. Very, very interesting. I want to pivot to Ukraine. You were the foreign minister of the European Union for the first Ukraine crisis. We're in a more grave second Ukraine crisis, you could argue. So I'd be curious about any lessons from that experience to where we are now. And do you think, you know, from the U.S. standpoint, there's some sense or perception that may not be fair that we, the United States, are doing a lot of this, and we're not getting as much support as we'd like from the United Kingdom and the European Union. Maybe that's fair, maybe that's not fair. I'd be curious about what you think about that perception. That's a lot, but I'd be curious about your take on Ukraine.
1: So, as you say in the book, I go back to the beginning, when we were told that this agreement we'd been negotiating for years was not going to be signed. It had been initialed, i.e. the technical work had been finished.
0: This is the trade agreement between Ukraine and the European Uh, Union.
1: It's called an association agreement, and it's, as you say, trade plus, and negotiated for seven years, initialed, and then not signed. And that was the spark for the Maidan demonstrations as they began. And, you know, Dan, I was there. It was freezing temperatures. There were families. There were people singing. There were lots of people from all walks of life gathering together to say, actually, we want the future that you promised us, which is to have a strong relationship with the European Union. We know that Russia is next door. It's not unimportant to us, but we want this relationship with the European Union. I think there are a number of lessons from that early time. The most obvious one from a European context is diversification of energy supply. And that was something that we'd been kind of talking around in Europe for a long time. But, you know, 28, as it was then, sovereign states have got to agree on proposals. There were differences of opinion on what kind of energy should be in the lead. You had France with nuclear power. You had Germany, which after Fukushima had decided, definitely not. Lots of differences, lots of different levels of reliance and a view that it was important to continue talking to Russia and continuing to find ways to develop a relationship with Russia. So let's number one, energy diversification. Big issue needs resolving because there are lots of places where we might have reason to be concerned where we get our energy supply. Number two, I think recognizing much more when we're not moving forward with a country, i.e. Russia. I was in Ukraine just before the pandemic just locked it all down And we were talking then with Ukrainian people about how challenging it was in Donbass. and nothing had changed, it had got worse. And we got to move away from the idea that a frozen conflict is a good thing, i.e. that we can live with it. We shouldn't have been living with what had happened already. And I think third, just being smarter about the fact that we might think it would be inconceivable for war to break out in Europe again my goodness history should tell us that it's remarkably often that that is the case so lots of lessons i think to learn from that in the context of what you're asking about the uk and the eu well the uk feels very passionately that it is fully behind ukraine there is absolute cross party agreement on that politically strong view from the population in support of the people of ukraine and that's manifested too i think in financial uh, and weapon support. EU would feel the same. Having said that, it's always the case that for the US-EU relationship, one of the great tensions, because sometimes tension is a good thing, is about pushing Europe to step up more to take responsibility on defence and security issues. We saw that with NATO. People blame President Trump. JFK, did a great speech way back about the importance of Europe taking more responsibility for its own defence and security. So there is a sense in which that that should be pushed even more. And it plays into something that when I was uh, at the EU was a big issue, a big kind of question mark, which is, is the EU a payer or a player? That was particularly relevant in other parts of the world, but it's something that really we need to kind of always think about important to put resources behind things. No question Europe is fully engaged in trying to support Ukraine financially and will be there for years to come because that's the nature of how the EU operates. But also developing and strengthening its political approach, that it can be a real partner in resolving issues, in negotiations, in the kind of work that we started way back when I was in the EU. Let me just pivot to my
0: last topic. Again, we're talking to Kathy Ashton, and it's about her new book, And Then What? It's interesting. I like the book very much. There's not a lot on China. Now, at the time when you were the equivalent of the foreign minister of the European Union, I think Europe's relationship and the UK's relationship and the US relationship with mainland China was perhaps more benign, I guess, or less complicated. Uh, and I think we're in a much more complicated place. Could you just talk a little bit about how you see China, if I said China, the EU, China and the United Kingdom discuss. What's your reaction to that?
1: Yeah, I mean there's there's plenty of things not in the book. It's either because I've ought to write another one or you have to kind of choose where you go. But you're absolutely right to point out the importance of China as a backdrop to this. So my my relationships with China were really interesting in that time period. Uh, First of all, because the EU did have uh, strong links with China economically for obvious reasons. So as trade commissioner, I'd been to China a number of times in a positive and a kind of negative way. We were looking at strengthening trade, trying to deal with intellectual property questions, which were a big question mark at that point, but it was a less complex relationship. But within it, we were already seeing one of the difficulties that I think is still true, and it's not just a European problem, I think it's broader and bigger than that, which is trying to work out exactly what this relationship is. Economically, it's intertwined, it's important, it's something that has potential in both directions. Politically, it's really challenging, with notable exceptions, like trying to get China engaged on the biggest question of all, which is climate change, we found it difficult to engage with them politically. But um, one of the things I do talk about in the book is, of course, the Iran negotiations, where China was a partner. And anyone who thinks that they didn't play a role, well, you need to read the book. But also, they were very much part of the discussions and part of the debate and quite prepared to workers collaborators with what we call the P5 plus one, the five permanent members of the Security Council, together with Germany to represent the three big European countries, France, Britain and Germany, who are party to the talks as well. And I think we are still really grappling with how to make this relationship work. In the UK, you know, we had this kind of golden age period 10, 12 years ago that's of course changed dramatically, it's cooled off dramatically, uh, and now is much more about trying to manage a difficult relationship with China. But there's a lack, I still think, of a really strategic approach across certainly Europe to try and look at what that means. And that essentially allows China to continue to talk bilaterally or in different groups of countries and not for us to have this common view and common approach that I think would be much more effective.
0: Well, look, Kathy, this is great. I really appreciate the time today. I want to encourage people to go out and read And Then What by Kathy Ashton. You can buy it at Amazon. You can buy it online. I encourage you to do so. Thanks, Kathy, for the time today.
1: Thank you, Dan, very much. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out
0: our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org/podcasts to see our full catalog.